Well, it's not that often that uh, we read the text a couple times and sing it before I get up to talk about it, uh, but I don't want to assume that you have your Bible open before you, so uh, if you don't, would you please get your Bible and uh, have it on your lap and open it to uh, Psalm 99. That, hopefully there have been enough clues so far that uh, Psalm 99 is where you'll head this morning. <clears throat> Well, one prominent theologian pointed out that you cannot summon God by shouting man in a loud voice. You cannot summon God by shouting man in a loud voice. I think we're all tempted to think that we can, that we can extrapolate from what we're like to what God's like, that somehow... God is like us, only more so. I mean, we're smart, at least we like to think we are. And he's kind of like that, only smarter. We're pretty nice, we tell ourselves we are anyway. But he's really serious about being nice. We're... A little bit religious. He's, of course, off the charts as far as being religious goes. And I could keep going from one aspect of God to the other, or maybe I should say from one aspect of my own personality and my own experience to another, and extrapolating and hoping that I figure God out that way. But that is not the way you arrive at an understanding of God. Our text this morning, as you've heard it read and sung, points out that God is not like us at all. Our word for that is the word holy. We'll get to that a little more in a few moments. So let's go through this psalm little by little and let it tell us the implications of God's holiness. What it means that God is holy in the world. Because really the holiness of this great king produces worship or it produces judgment. It will either cause you to praise God or it will cause you to tremble in fear. Because this king reigns as a holy one, he is to be worshipped and exalted. Look at Psalm 99, verse 1. This is what His reign over the whole world looks like. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great name, your great and awesome name. Holy is He. So Psalm starts out by asserting what uh, is true, but we may not believe. And that is that no matter what it looks like, the Lord reigns in Zion. 
that it is not the president, it's not some other dictator that reigns, it is the Lord who reigns in Zion. And it tells us he is enthroned on the cherubim. To be enthroned on the cherubim is a clear reference to the Ark of the Covenant that uh, was shrouded by these two figures described as cherubim. The cherubim is just the, the way that you make the Hebrew word for cherub plural. Cherubim is plural for cherub. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word cherub, but I know what I think of, right? Some little diapered babies with wings and bowed arrows, right? That's what, that's, so you're, you're reading this, he's, he's enthroned upon the cherubim. Like, who cares? There's nothing particularly quake-inducing about cherubs. But really, that's not the right picture of a cherub. I, I mean, that comes more from Valen, you know, Valentine's cards than it does from the Scripture. A cherub is a winged angel represented in ancient Middle Eastern art as a lion or a bull with eagle's wings and a human face. In other words, it is this compilation, this mismatch of the strongest, most ferocious images that can be imagined. A cherubim is no, cherubim are nothing to be messed with. You don't trifle with the cherub. In fact, these ferocious beings were uh, given flaming swords and posted on the outskirts of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from re-entering because God was serious about having them stay away. And so to say that the Lord dwells uh, among or above these cherubim in the ark is to say that He is in the holiest of holy places ruling over the world from the center of gravity that is the temple and the Holy of Holies. And what this psalm starts out with is the implications of the reign of God for the nations. You'll notice it says that the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. The whole earth quakes. And the first stanza here of this psalm speaks of the reign of God and the way that the world, the, out, the, the world outside the people of God, interacts with the reign of God in holiness. In some respect, it is almost as though it's out of Sunday morning cartoons when something's going to happen and the knees start knocking and you hear this sort of hilarious sound. Because that's what's happening. Is that they are encountering God and realizing we have made a grave mistake. We have treated the God of Israel as though He does not matter. And the God of Israel instead reigns from Zion and we're not prepared 
And so they shudder in terror. Because he is great in Zion. One author says it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence or influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news in truth in his truth, less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is what it means for God to be weightless. And so, instead of reigning in holiness and power, the world treats him as though he's unimportant and inconsequential. And so, when they realize that he reigns, They shudder in fear. But of course, even the stanza tells us what they should be doing. It says, let them praise your great and awesome name. The peoples, all the peoples, should be engaged in worship. What you are doing here in worshiping the Lord is the the right response to His holiness. In fact, that's the reason why they should be worshiping, isn't it? Because holy is He. The stanza ends with holy is He. Same author says, what has most been lost needs to be most recovered. Namely, the unsettling, disconcerting fact that God is holy. And we place ourselves in great peril if we seek to render Him a plaything of our piety or an ornamental decoration on our religious life or a product to answer our inward dissatisfactions. God offers Himself on His own terms or not at all. That's why the peoples tremble. Second stanza, verses 4 and 5, says not only does he reign over the whole world, but he reigns specially among his people. In Jacob, it says, verse 4, the king in his might loves justice. You have executed or established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is He. The holiness of this King who reigns demands righteousness and justice and equity. 
it manifests itself, this holiness manifests itself to the nations in dreadful strength. It manifests itself in Jacob in order and rightness and peace. He has established his law, his justice among Jacob. It's interesting to me that he's established this justice in Jacob. You remember, because, I mean, Jacob sometimes is called, most of the time, is called Israel or called uh, the people of God. Some other name. Jacob's a little unusual. But he's executed justice in Jacob because he wants us to remember how Jacob got started. You do remember that, right? Jacob's the one who stole the blessing. He's the one who stole the birthright. He was a shyster among shysters, wasn't he? His name means heel grabber or thief. And instead of that, God has established his justice, his equity, and his righteousness. And so life is different among God's people. There is a flourishing and a peace among God's people because they are ruled in justice. The king... It says, in his might loves justice. You want the king to love justice. You want the strongest person you know to be just. Because you can't compel someone stronger than you to do what's right if they don't want to. But what we have here is that God is both mighty and just. The strongest person that you know is the most just person that you know. The hope that we have is that the only one who can execute justice will execute justice. In fact, it tells us that he loves justice. How much do you love justice? See, I think most of us don't think about justice probably near enough. We experience just enough of it that we can get by without standing up if someone else is treated unjustly. We don't pay attention to things that go unaddressed. Yet we find that our king, in his might, loves. Not just is neutral or is positive about it. He loves justice. Those of you who are working for justice are working for things this king loves. And so he reigns and rules in justice and he he establishes his righteousness throughout his people and they experience peace. And then, you'll notice what they do. They come worship at his footstool. They worship at his footstool. And as Scott mentioned earlier in the the service, the the gospel is the story that God is writing throughout history. He created everything perfectly until human beings rebelled against him and their entire existence then became flavored with injustice and inequity. There was a dark side to all of the good things. And God began at that moment to redeem them and to draw them back into relationship to Him and to 
turn right all the things that were turned wrong. And in that story of God, the pinnacle of it, the peak of God's holiness and His justice, we find at the cross of Jesus. Where His holiness is completely satisfied, as is His mercy and love. And so this invitation to come worship at the footstool of God is an invitation to come to Jesus. And Jesus, as this perfect expression of God's holiness, is the one to whom we will come in worship. In the book of Philippians, it uh, tells us to pay attention to the attitude that Jesus had. And then it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This expression, then, of the holiness of God that we find in the person of Jesus invites us to do exactly what Psalm 99 says, and that is to worship and bow down before Him. And again, why do you worship and bow down before the God of Israel? We do it because as, as this... This stanza ends with the same phrase, doesn't it? Holy is He. Holy is He. Now, I hope we're far enough along that it'll be helpful to talk briefly about the holiness of God. So when you see a psalm like this, when you see this kind of thing, you um, need to recognize two or three things about the word holiness. The first aspect of the holiness of God, or the first thing that needs to come to your mind when you read that He is holy, is this. That God is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other. He is completely not like we are. That's how I began the message. You don't extrapolate from uh, human nature to divine nature. He is the creator. We are the created. They are different. God in His essence is different than you are and than I am in our essences. That's why the nations tremble. They look at Him and they cannot figure Him out. Because he is completely foreign to them. There is a mystery about God that I think we treat so lightly as though he's just a buddy or he's my friend or he's the old man upstairs and he's not. 
is completely other. The word holiness means set apart. So if, if a priest is holy or an implement of worship is holy, they are set apart for special use. And God, because He is holy, He is the most set apart and the most unique. So that's the first thing you must recognize. God is not like you or any of His creation. He is other. That's what holiness means. The other thing that holiness means is that when, when this, the Scripture talks about God's holiness, it talks about Him in His completion. It talks about Him in His entirety so that you can envision when God is holy, He is complete. He is complete in His love and His justice. He is complete in His compassion and His righteousness. He is complete in His power and in His goodness. He is complete in all of these ways so that holiness essentially encompasses all of the common traits that we use when we speak about God. Holiness is the most often spoken about uh, conception of God in the Bible. And it is because it essentially wraps up all of those other characteristics. It's all the attributes together. So when it says holy is He, it means that He is infinitely that is infinitely transcendent and imminent. He is infinitely uh, good and just and compassionate and kind. All of those together. And then the third thing that needs to come to your mind when you hear that He is holy is probably the first thing that comes to your mind. And that is that he is, um, there is a moral purity about God that is not like anything else. In other words, there is no shadow side to the person of God. There is no dark aspect to the brightness of His character. Let me just tell you a little bit of what I mean. I mean, I think most of us would think that God's love is a good thing, right? So we'll say that's the, the characteristic that shines brightly. And we're, uh, we like that about Him. But when I think about myself, right? I extrapolate from myself to God. When I'm thinking about myself and I want to think that I'm loving, there's all kinds of dark shadowiness underneath that. Because there is this selfishness that I'm not a, I might be loving, but part of it is that I want you to think I'm loving. Part of it is that I might be loving so that someone loves me back. I might have this intent to love and yet imperfectly carry it out. All of these things represent this sort of shadow side to what otherwise would be this beautiful quality. And when we talk about the moral purity of God, we're saying that there is no dark side to His justice. I mean, how many times does somebody execute justice and it results in simple harshness 
or it goes into some other kind of injustice, even in the execution of the justice. Because all of us have this shadow side to the moral characteristics in our life, whereas God doesn't. And so He is completely other. He is transcendent above and separate from His, care, from his creation. Uh, holiness represents all of His perfections together, and each of those perfections does not have this dark side that we are so familiar with. So that's what we mean when we talk about His holiness. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, has a lot to say about holiness. This is, and it's worth passing along to you, uh, even at some length, because as you think about what it means for God to be other and to be morally pure and to be uh, infinite in His perfections, it changes the way you think about God and the way you process life. Here is, here is the way that he, he says it. He said, If God's holiness is His utter purity, His incomparable goodness, the measure of all that is true and right, the final line of resistance to all that is wrong, dark, and malignant, then love must be part of this. If love is virtuous and right, it must be an expression of divine holiness, the essence of which is truth and right. God's love is inescapably a manifestation of His holiness, as are His goodness, righteousness, mercy, and compassion. Holiness is what defines God's character most fundamentally. And a vision of this holiness should inspire His people, this is right out of Psalm 99, and evoke their worship, sustain their character, and fuel their passion for truth, and encourage persistence in efforts to do His will and call upon His name in prayer. God's holiness is central to how we need to think about God. He continues and says, first, we note that God's holiness and majesty belong together and they interpret one another. He reigns in holiness. In His holiness, God is not to be trifled with. Familiarity with God inherently borders on contempt and is subject to judgment. Then he says, second, and growing out of this, is the fact that holiness is never a remote quality in the Old Testament. Holiness is what God is in His essential character. What He is in His confrontation with sin and evil. This is why people, things, and places are referred to as holy only in a secondary sense. Only in a sense that God sets them apart to serve a special moral or religious purpose. So it is that when we succeed in cloaking the holiness of God and focusing on His love to the exclusion of His wrath, we unsettle the whole moral universe. We create a God who may be patient, kindly, and compassionate, but who is without the will to resist what is wrong, without the will to judge it, and without the power to destroy it. Such a God lacks the moral earnestness to attract our attention, 
let alone inspire our beliefs or warrant our worship. Such a God is not the God of the Bible and is not the God of Jesus Christ. We may place him at the center of our faith, but he cannot be the great protagonist in the moral dilemma or the moral drama of the world. The conflict between good and evil for without holiness there is no drama and there is no hope hope dies when it can no longer see through the veil of tears to the triumph of God's sovereign goodness on the other side the key to this triumph of course is the life death and resurrection of Christ in whom the end is inaugurated and declared when holiness slips from sight so too does the, con the centrality of Christ. A God who is not holy cannot deal with the great darkness of corrupted human nature, the darker forces behind it, and the whole societal fabric in which this rebellion has become normative. Without this holiness of God, sin has no meaning, and grace has no point. For it is God's holiness that gives to the one its definition and to the other its greatness. Without the holiness of God, sin is merely human failure, but not failure before God in relationship to God. It is failure without the standard by which we know it to have fallen short. It is failure without the presumption of guilt, failure without retribution, failure without any serious moral meaning. And without the holiness of God, grace is no longer grace because it does not arise from the dark clouds of judgment that obscured the cross and exacted the damnation of the Son in our place. Furthermore, without holiness, grace loses its meaning as grace. A free gift of the God who, despite His holiness and because of His holiness, has reconciled sinners to Himself in the death of His Son. And without holiness, faith is but a confidence in the benevolence of life, or perhaps merely confidence in ourselves. With respect to holiness, another author says, love is but the outgoing of holiness, sin but its defiance, grace but the action of holiness on sin, the cross is but the victory of holiness, and faith is but its worship. So holiness is central to who God is and to how He reigns in the world. And He'll either strike terror on the one hand or in, invite worship on the other. And that brings us then to the third stanza here that we have not yet um, paid attention to. And this is, this is every bit as warm and inviting as the otherness and holiness of God is terrifying. And that is that this holy king is more than just distant. He responds to his people. Look at, look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of fire he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and statutes that he gave them. O oh Lord our God, you answered them. You were, but, you were a forgiving God to them and an avenger of their wrongdoings. 
Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. For the Lord our God is holy. This is the third time that we're told in this psalm that God is holy. It reminds us of the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where again the cherubim were uh, circling the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The holiness of God is the only description we have of God that is raised to the third power. It is repeated three times for a triple, a triple emphasis. So God is holy. Yet, you notice in this text, these three, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, call upon the Lord and they, uh, they stand in as representatives of people who are serious about doing what God asked them to do. They stand in as those who keep His testimonies and statutes. Verse 7. It says they kept His testimonies and the statutes that He'd given them. They responded to God in faith. And you'll notice God responds to them. They drew near to God and God drew near to them. We're told that God is holy. He is distinct, but He is not distant. Instead, this God who is transcendent and frightening is also present and involved. And His response here to their call is to answer them and to forgive them and to avenge their wrongdoing, isn't it? I hope we understand what it means for God to answer. He responds to our prayers. He heard Moses and Aaron and Samuel. I mean, Moses, think about it. I mean, Moses, uh, well, first of all, God responded to the prayers of the people of Israel as they were in slavery under, under Egypt. He sent Moses. Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go, and nothing happened. And they continued to call out to the Lord, and He set them free. And they set out for the promised land and ended up backed up against the Red Sea. And here came the Egyptian army. And I'm pretty confident they cried out in earnest. And God responded and opened the sea and made a way. And so that's what He's saying. God hears their prayers and he answers. The second thing you'll notice about this is he was a forgiving God to them. God was a forgiving God. And I, I hope we have some idea what it means to forgive. The simplest answer or simplest definition I have is that you let someone off your hook. If, if someone has hurt you, you let that, you let that go. You don't require punishment in return. And he was a forgiving God toward them. But what does that mean? I don't think we give that quite enough thought, really. Because how could God let 
that golden calf go when Aaron built a golden calf in the wilderness? Like, huh, what's God going to do? That's no big deal. It was a very big deal. Or when Moses struck the rock, what's God, what's God supposed to do? Say, oh, I know you were a little upset then. It's no big deal. Does the guy just wink and say, hey, no problem? You see, because most any arrangement that you think of for how God might somehow let that go results in God compromising His holiness or neglecting His justice. So how could God do that? I want to submit to you that there is a way and in the infinite wisdom of His holiness, God found a way. It's most clearly expressed in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 23, the problem is clearly stated. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, there is that. That's, that's exactly what he said about Moses and Aaron and Samuel. They sinned. And then what? It says in verse, the next verse, they are justified, or justified means made right. So what was wrong that they had done is made right by His grace as a gift. So God wasn't up in heaven saying, Moses, if you just behave, the rest of the time will be good. Or Aaron, why don't you do these six things and then it will be taken care of. It was by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, propitiation simply means that God's anger, His holy and righteous anger against that sin, is satisfied. In other words, He's no longer angry at them. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus, it says. Because Jesus died and if you receive the benefit of the death of Christ by faith, in other words, believing it's for you, rather than trying to work your way into God's good graces, but rather say, I need help, and I'm going to take the help that Jesus offers. You receive that by faith. God is no longer angry with you and your sin. Now, it tells us, then, why did God do this? This was to show God's righteousness. In other words, to demonstrate that God is still right because in His divine forbearance, He was super patient, He passed over the former sins, the sins that were done beforehand by Moses and Aaron and Samuel and David and all the people before Christ. They were forgiven the same way you and I are forgiven because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against them just like he satisfied the wrath of God against you. In summary, verse 26, it was to show the righteousness of God at the present time so that God might remain just. He's still right. And he can justify the one who has faith in Jesus. He doesn't have to compromise his righteousness and justice. He can do both because justice was executed on the cross of Jesus. 
And so here, even in the Old Testament, Jesus is placed at the center of God's drama of redemption. And that is how Jesus, that's how God could be a forgiving God to them, is because He sent His Son. And then it tells us that He avenged their wrongdoings. He avenged their wrongdoings. He avenged them on the cross that they might be forgiven. Now, not only does God respond, this is the other thing I want you to see here. In verses 8 and 9, this terrifyingly holy God is also, look down at, look down at verses 8 and 9. He is our God. He is other, yes. He's holy, yes. And He's ours. The Lord our God is holiness. Is holy. This otherness of God is tempered by the covenant promises He makes to His people. And so, the unique place that you have in this whole drama of redemption is if you trust that Jesus is the one who saves you and protects you from the holiness of God. He is your God, and He is holy other, and He is yours. And so, of course, the final refrain says, exalt the Lord and worship Him. Our response is to exalt Him and worship Him because of His holiness, the same thing. And so I want you to think, this has practical implications for all of life. If God is holy, we live differently around Him. I mean, when, I don't know, the national anthem is played, people take off their hat, don't they? To honor the nation, honor the song. How much more would you dress differently or would you uh, act differently to um, come into the presence of a holy God? How much more seriously would you take coming into His presence with His people to sing His praises and exalt Him like the psalm says? Because He's holy. One of the things that we do because of the Lord's holiness is that we share together the Lord's Supper. We take communion. It is, among other things, a time for us to reflect on the holiness of God. We reflect on the holiness of God because it was God's perfect justice that exacted the punishment for our sin while at the same time His mercy showed His kindness to us. And all of the perfection of God are on display in the cross. So for us to remember the cross is to remember that we're coming before a holy God. So normally when we receive communion, uh, I uh, read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The verses right after the ones I always read to you reflect the seriousness with which we ought to take the holiness of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 
beginning in verse 27, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. For you not to realize that, that this is a holy God that we come before that exacted His justice on His very Son so that you and I might be here today having a hope that on the other side of all the things we experience in this life, there will be hope. If, we're, if we don't recognize all that He's done for us, in other words, do it in an unworthy manner, we're guilty. He goes on to say, let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There is a warning here that what we are remembering is the pinnacle of the holiness of God exhibited on the cross of Jesus. Which on the one hand is frightening. And on the other hand, it brings the deepest comfort in the world. And so if you have reconciled with God, if you are reconciled to His holiness through Christ Jesus, I want to invite you um, to the communion table with us. This is our reflection on the death and resurrection of Jesus and how God has exhibited His holiness through that. What we do here is that we come, you know, just down the center, come to the table, take the elements. There's two cups. Make sure you get both of them returned to your seat and we'll participate together. And so if you're reconciled, uh, to the holiness of God, then please join us. If you're not sure, if you're here kind of exploring or thinking about it, I'm really glad you're here. You're in the right place. But don't feel like you have to participate in this part of our service. Uh, this is really for those who can look back with faith that the cross of Christ is for them. So let me pray for us and then we'll remember our Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are we're humbled because we'd love to think that we're good enough. We'd love to think that we don't have the deep-seated needs that we have. And to be confronted again this morning with your holiness and the reality that it required a perfect Savior for us to be reconciled to you is heartbreaking and humbling. And so would you place our hearts in the right frame of mind? Would you help us to adore Jesus as we reflect on His sacrifice for us? And I ask this because He died for us and rose again. Amen.